Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Well, folks, thanks again for joining the latest episode of the Foundation Podcast. Each week, as you know, we talk about the foundational principles of the conservative movement, often about the free market, often about our friends who call themselves libertarians. Everyone welcome to the movement, what really is a big tent philosophically. And thus, we are privileged this week to have someone who, although humble and would not own up to this, is one of the leading figures in our movement today, and that is Eric Erickson. Eric, thanks so much for joining us this week. Well, thank you very much. That's very flattering. I, I'm not sure it is true, but thank you. Well, I knew you would say that, but it is true. And it's true for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is you are one of the most articulate communicators of conservatism today. And you've done that in many different media. I'm sure that many of our listeners have seen you on TV. Perhaps they've, they've heard you on the radio. And, and some may even be regular readers of your news site, The Resurgent. We have been wanting to have you on the podcast because of your longstanding work in the movement and in some public policy. In particular, we wanted you on the podcast this week because you have this upcoming conference in Austin, which we'll talk a little bit about today or a lot if you would like. But let's let's kick off the conversation today by having you update our listeners to the, the work that you're doing. Sure. Um, so. I left, uh, I w was with CNN for three years through 2013 and then moved over to Fox where I've been until the end of January this year. Um, we had a mutual parting of ways. I really didn't want to stay. They weren't really sure they wanted to have me. And ironically, I've actually been on Fox now more since I wasn't under contract with them than I was last year. I, I do meet the press uh, fairly regularly. Um, one of the conservatives who is willing to go on real time with Bill Maher on HBO uh, and am frequently now back at CNN a lot, as well as doing a radio show in Atlanta, Georgia on WSB, the nation's most listened to talk station, um, and then run the resurgent uh, and have a syndicated column. I spent a lot of time trying to explain to people uh, what is going on in the world today from a conservative perspective, uh, what I think conservatism is and um, what, people should be thinking about in terms of conservatism. And while all of this is going on, I'm actually working on my PhD in theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so you sleep, what, two or three hours a day? Usually, yes. And in, in those two and a half hours, I tend to wake up in a cold panic uh, one or twice in wondering what the heck am I doing with all this? Oh, Matt. Well, God, God bless you for everything you're doing, <laughs> Thank in, you. in, in, including working on your, your PhD in theology. And I, I I'm, I'm thinking about all of the different topics we could cover in the relatively short amount of time we have today. And I think our listeners would be most interested in hearing from you what you think are the biggest opportunities for conservatives today, whether that's because of recent political circumstances or in spite of them, um, as well as a follow-up question, which is what are the most challenging issues that you find either on, on the matter of substance or in particular, given what you do so many hours a day, communicating about them? 
Well, I, two things. One, I would say conservatism is actually winning in this country, even though oftentimes it feels like by listening to the media or whatnot, it's not. Um, it, Republicans, with the exception of, of the presidency until 2016, have been winning across the board down to the local level nationally. And the big issue has been about local empowerment, deregulation, uh, getting people out of the way um, to empower individuals. I, I, I think at the national level, particularly right now, and, and conservatives ran into this even when George W. Bush was president, is being willing to support the president while also maintaining that our conservatism is not beholden to the president. Uh, the Republicans and conservatives have been used as a synonym for so long, but they're not the same thing. Conservatism means something. Uh, individual liberty, free markets, um, a, a, a democracy of the dead, having a voice in, in the say of where we go culturally in this country, as Chesterton would say. Uh, and we need to not be willing to surrender that to any one individual. Um, but uh, by and large, I think conservatism tends to have a natural level of pessimism built in because we understand the real nature of man much more so than progressives who believe that uh, you can e essentially um, steer and improve mankind as opposed to understanding we have a soul and we're sinful. And uh, I tell people all the time, in fact, I'm a conservative because I believe we're all sinners and I want as few in charge of me as possible. Um, but I, I think we're, we're really at the local level. People get it. They understand. And everyone, frankly, is conservative about the thing they know the best. Oh, that's that's so well said. So if we were to try to tease out from that response, some examples of, of public policy, whether it be, I don't know, education policy, immigration, something in foreign policy are thinking about where we are politically in the now the second half of 2018. Donald Trump is president of the United States. We we have the trifecta in most states, the executive branch and both houses of the legislature. Which policies provide us as conservatives the greatest opportunity for real conservative reform? Something that's been elusive, frankly, in spite of the fact that we've won the White House so many times in the last half century. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to have to explain my answer, uh, but my answer is nothing. Um, and, and what I mean by that is this, when Donald Trump was elected president of the United States, uh, progressives, liberals in this country decided it was the end of all we had known and everything would be bad. But in fact, no one's life has been markedly hurt by the president. In fact, if nothing else, the, the worst possible case scenario for any individual American is that you have more take-home pay. Mm -hmm. um, lives have not changed fundamentally because one, one of the, the defining things of conservatism is you move slow in the issue of great change. And if your life has been affected by the Republican dominance of the last 20 years at the, the state and local level and, and uh, the, the White House these last few years, your life has changed to provide you more options in life. 
You now have more options for jobs. You have more options for spending money because you have more in your paycheck. Uh, you, you don't have a, a government mandated one thing or another. You have multiple choices. Uh, in fact, I do believe it's it's deeply ironic that so much of the left defines itself by the moniker being pro-choice, where the, the only choice the left wants to give you is whether or not you can, can have an abortion or not. Everything else must be individually laid out by the government. Uh, the reverse is in conservatism. Uh, we believe you should be able to pick your own doctor. You should be able to pick your own job. You should be able to pick your own health care plan. Uh, you should have more take-home pay to help enable you to do these choices, and you should be able to pick the school you want to send your kids to go. And by and large, um, the measure of conservatism in this country right now is by how many options you have uh, to do things through government or without government getting in the way. And and, and what is the, the bedrock of all of that? is our understanding of the human person. And we, we form civil society in order to, of course, enhance our, our rights. There, liberals will sometimes describe that as giving up our rights in order for the government to provide them for us. Obviously, that's, that's incorrect. But it also explains why conservatives can want, desire freedom in all of those different aspects that you enumerated and also understand that there is no right to an abortion. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting as we, we get into the teeth of the fall campaign season here for the midterm elections, that if you listen carefully to almost every single left of center candidate for office, that ultimately their entire entire argument rests, as you suggested, on that one issue of abortion. And it's and, and then they take the, the the rhetoric that they are quote unquote pro-choice and try to turn that into some broad political philosophy that is pro-freedom and nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, very much so. The the whole idea on the left that rights should be defined um, by whether or not a, a woman can get an abortion, it, it is a very exclusivist bit of rhetoric when you actually get into the weeds of it. Uh, and they're trying to say that somehow they're empowering liberty uh, by doing this, the fact of the matter is the left believes that the government should allow these things and give you certain things like health care so that you can go live your dream of, of being someone who sticks your hand up the uh, rectum of a puppet every day and get you a, a Ph.D. in puppetry arts where you can live off of $10,000 a year because the government cu- subsidizes everything you do. The problem with that, though, is that while you may find your soul being fulfilled and being a master of puppetry arts, um, you're essentially asking everyone else in the country to subsidize your dream. Uh, where conservatism, I think, prevails at the end of the day is we encourage individual responsibility. And if you've got dreams, live them, but also cover the costs for yourself in this. Um, it, it is amazing to me that the left is trying to advance an argument in this country um, basically on one right that no one can actually point to in the Constitution and say, here it is, read it for yourself. Uh, it's an interpretation of a right that is not actually itself in the Constitution um, and, and all in the name of, of some level of personal liberty where they pay no con- pay no attention to the consequence of everyone else. It, it, there's a level of selfishness in progressivism in America today, where anyone who is capable and able must subsidize uh, those who want to have a good time. Well, it, it, there's there's so many points of dissonance, it, even, even dichotomy in American liberal thought in the 21st century. I, I say all the time, as an aside on, on my radio program, I say all the time that progressivism 
is the logic of the insane asylum because there's so much of it that is inconsistent. Yeah, for example, that that at least in public policy, you could, without even being pejorative, summarize their agenda as being collectivist, and yet they are. I mean, almost without exception. And I'm I'm trying to be kind and nice here. People who are very selfish, uh, if if not narcissistic, and and it just speaks to the reality especially for those of us who have studied at least a little bit of, of proper philosophy, that their position is simply illogical. Yes, very much so. It contradicts itself. And what we're actually seeing now in the culture wars of the 21st century is they're turning in against themselves uh, as well as fighting people on the right. I, I always describe progressivism in America today as very much like the scenes from the Lord of the Rings where the orcs are marching. And, and when the orcs are marching against the hobbits and the men, they're all focused on destroying them. But once they don't see them anymore, they immediately turn and start killing each other. So here's here's the dilemma then for those of us who are conservatives. It, it seems pretty obvious that there are, at the very least, philosophical problems left of center in the United States. And we also, for those of us who are conservatives, seem to have more like-minded people in elected office than we have had many times. As an American historian, I would say that, in fact, is factually true. Of course, there's a difference of opinion among conservatives. Why then... Are we having such a difficult time, and not just in 2018, but say in 2003 or 1983, advancing conservative ideas and implementing them in government policy? Part of it is because voters lack discernment. You know, I, I tell people all the time if the you Supreme sound like Court the founding tomorrow, fathers. Yes. Um, I tell people all the time if, if the Supreme Court tomorrow said abortion wasn't a constitutional right, it, it wouldn't mean that abortion was banned, like liberals argue. It would just mean that uh, you can go back to the states, and the states can decide whether or not you can have an abortion or not, or the people can decide it. Uh, and what conservatives would immediately find, and what most of the pro-life movement would find, is that many of the politicians who for years have been championing as as defenders of babies and pro-life politicians actually wouldn't vote to get rid of abortion in their states. Uh, they, they've had the convenience of being able to champion that position for so long because they knew it didn't matter. The Supreme court stood in their way. And that's kind of what it is with conservatism as well, is that many of the politicians who knew I need to say these things to get elected and I'll never have the opportunity to have to worry about them suddenly find themselves in a position where republicanism is so dominant across the country uh, that they are in positions of power to be able to affect change. And now they, they really don't want to. It, it remains a minority proposition in this country, uh, at least when it comes to fiscal issues, um, social issues. Still, the nation by and large still is is rather socially conservative, not as socially conservative as it once was, but on fiscal issues for sure. Um, a, a lot of the people who have for years claimed they support free markets and um, they don't think the government should pick winners and losers actually kind of like the idea of the government picking winners and losers because it benefits their campaign fund. Sure. And and the, the, the perpetuation of power is unfortunately a natural desire by people who taste power. Of course, our founders, uh, someone like Edmund Burke, discussed this and, and understood that going back to the very first point you made a few moments ago about the nature of, of, of us as sinners. And so as, as I've gone around the country over the years and talked about the American system of government, often people will say, and, and thoughtful folks, probably like-minded folks have said, well, there's just something wrong with the system. We need to change the system. And I said, no, you need to spend some time reading to Tocqueville and, and others and understand that this system of government we have 
is built upon the assumption of the virtue of the citizenry. And because, of course, none of us is perfect, the system is going to reflect that imperfection. The problem over the last hundred years, I would say, especially over the last 60 or 70, is that as the culture has deteriorated, I would say, frankly, that there's less virtue, less civic virtue for sure, Mm -hmm. that we have seen the system really reflect that deterioration. Oh, I I absolutely think so. We have a population that is not as well educated as it was uh, even 30 years ago. Uh, we have a an inward dwelling population. And most disturbingly, we have a population in this country that is breaking down at the community level as people are staring at the screen of their cell phone instead of uh, their next door neighbor's face. And that has all sorts of societal implications that we're only just beginning to see in the country, including the rise of conspiracy theorists and stuff where everyone can make a community that looks and thinks exactly like themselves and doesn't have to engage with the people next door. Um, frankly, as, as someone in in uh, studying ministry and in uh, in ministry to a degree, I often bring up the the line of Jeremiah the, to seek the welfare of your exile. For there, you'll find your exile. You'll find um, um, well, you'll find your welfare, and mm-hmm. that actually specifically you can see by the language in that scripture. It actually means your local community. It doesn't mean your state. It doesn't mean your your country. It means your actual local community. And that's where conservatism really works well, too, on your school board, on your city council, on your county commission. Um, but also when we spend so much time wound up in seeking the welfare of Washington, D.C. and our welfare through Washington, uh, we ignore the homeless man down the street. We ignore the problems on the local school board. We ignore the taxation problems at the local level, and we just focus on Washington. And I think, frankly, conservatives should be much more muscular in their policy about empowering people at the local level. And remind people that your day-to-day life should be much more influenced by your local city government than by Washington, D.C. And it's it's so tempting among uh, – it is tempting for many of our conservative friends, and these are good guys and gals, to see the, the access to power, the power that, that, that our side has today, and want to use the executive branch in particular, D.C. in general – to repair problems that are really at the local level. And and it's difficult sometimes, and I'm sure you run into this, if not every week, every day, communicating to our friends who, of course, are of the best of intentions and are right-minded, that that's not the reaction that we ought to have. We really ought to be building as conservatives a longer-term play. But that's always been difficult to do in a representative republic. Very much so. Um, and there's also there's another angle here as well that is it plays into all of this, and that is the news cycle, which is nonstop. It's hard for people to keep up with. And because it is so much about Washington, D.C., um, people believe that they have to use Washington, D.C., to fix those problems, even when that's not necessarily the case. Uh, there, There is a there's an element now within uh, people on the right who I think at heart really are ideologically principally conservative, but really do want the strongman in Washington to fix those things. And uh, we would all be better off um, disarming and recognizing and, and showing people that it's it's far better off when we don't have that strong man. You know, I mean, even going to it sounds trite to say, but the constitutional structures in this country where the president was never supposed to be 
the strongest branch. It is a misstatement to say we have three co-equal branches of government. No, the founders actually put them in the order of strongest to weakest, or at least the way they should, and it's almost reversed now. Um, but even down to gridlock, that's that's a feature, not a bug. The the founders of this country knew very well that if the country was more divided, it should be much harder for Washington to get things done because of that division. And they also had a real, real understanding of people in a way we don't anymore because they had just come through a very bloody war fighting their fellow citizen over the right to be independent. They, they, they were very realistic when it came to the nature of other people. Sure. And, and the, the, the nature of other people right now, thinking about representatives in, in the U.S. House, is such that they have collectively sort of given up their power. They've conceded their power to the other two branches. Of course, not just to the judicial branch, which many people think about when they decry the, the power of judicial decisions. But as you just said, the executive branch, and, and in particular, I'm thinking about the growth of the administrative state, the impossibility, it seems, to roll back regulation for that matter, just for the, the head of a, an agency to have real control of his or her division. It's something that for me as a conservative drives me nuts because it's not just, I would say, unjust intrinsically in, in terms of the regulations that flow from that particular agency, but also because the people who have been elected by their own constituents to represent them in Washington are failing at what I see is not just a civic obligation, but a moral obligation to abide what they have agreed to do. And I, I think it's a, if, and I don't want to be an alarmist here, but it's, it's, if it's not at the point of crisis in this particular phase in, in the American Republic's history, I think we're close. Oh, I, I think we actually are at the pass at past the point of crisis because you have regulators now who can adopt regulations uh, that if you run afoul of the regulation, you go to jail. Uh, and these people are unaccountable because they're unelectable. They're not elected. The founders of this country, number one, never considered uh, criminal law as something to be handled at the federal level. Uh, it's not in Article 1, Section 8, by and large, uh, some early exceptions. Uh, but then the growth and expansion of the bureaucratic state and seeing unelected people being able to do things that can cause people to go to jail uh, when common law is founded on the very idea that ignorance of the law is no excuse for violating the law. But that only works when the people can understand the law. And when you have bureaucrats who pass regulations, uh, it, oftentimes at the very end of administrations, uh, sight unseen by most people, um, it, it's hard for the people to self-regulate legally when they don't even know what the law is anymore. Uh, it, it, it's a huge breakdown in not only what the founders intended, but what most American administrations and, and people elected to the federal government would have understood up until probably the 1950s or 60s when the bureaucracy began to explode after the Second World War. Um, it, it's, it's hard for people to fathom just how many things they do on a daily basis that really run afoul of federal regulations to the extent that they could wind up being fined or imprisoned. And I think people would be outraged if they knew, and to some degree, they don't want to know so they can sleep well at night. Right. And that, that's actually an excellent segue into this event that you and your staff have planned for right here in Austin, Texas in early August. Why don't you tell us what, what that event is? what the rationale is behind it and some of the details in case some of our listeners are interested in attending. 
Austin, Texas in August is really something that I wasn't running through my mind when I was planning the event. I just want people to know that um, we, we will stay inside in the air conditioning. Uh, but really, it works, the air conditioning works really well in Austin, Texas. I can attest. Uh, I I really have felt we, there are a number of conservative conferences that happen every year. Many of them you have to pay a lot of money to go to. Uh, and then when you get there, you have to pay a little more money to go to certain things. And I've I've wanted to do and have done in the past grassroots conferences where we keep the cost low. We rely on sponsors to subsidize the cost of the event. But then there are sponsors that I've reached out to and said, I want to talk about this. Can you help? Uh, as opposed to letting any sponsor come and say, hey, hey, brand me a conservative. I'll give you money. Uh, I, I don't like pay to play conservatism. So I, I've been doing these for a while, first at Red State. And the format then when I was at Red State was bring in a politician or someone, let them speak to the crowd and then take questions. And I've decided, you know, we need at this point, it seems like we've lost some of the the core belief in conservatism and we're so wrapped up in the politics of personality I want to actually have people come on stage and have conversations with me and I will weave in questions from the crowd, but the focus being on uh, what policy should conservatives advance at the state and federal level, uh, irrespective of who's in charge, take the president out of the equation who can be divisive, even among some Republicans. What should we be advocating for the president to push for? How should we respond as conservatives on the issue of tariffs without losing our soul? How should we do these things? So, we're bringing in people like Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, Rick Perry, the secretary of energy, uh, David Perdue, the senator from Georgia, Ted Cruz from Texas, Greg Abbott from Texas, uh, Warren Davidson, the congressman who replaced John Boehner, who actually moved that seat dramatically to the right. Uh, and then we're bringing in executives from Google and Facebook, among others, to have them sit on stage with me and talk about public policy conservative perspective and with these companies like Google and Facebook to talk to them about uh, privacy issues and conservative concerns about being blocked on their platforms and really have not not let people speechify but have an actual conversation where we can question them and and push back and they can push back so that we can kind of arrive at a real solution on these issues. Well, I tell you, it's it's so appealing that that is the resurgent conference here in Austin, Texas, early August in part because it's going to be conversation after conversation rather than a weekend of being talked at. And I think yeah. that, that that all of us, both left and right of center in the United States, are, are tired of being talked at. And it really underscores a point that you made powerfully but quickly several moments ago about knowing the screens of our phones better than we know the faces of our neighbor. And, I, and, I, and I've, I've said many times, especially in the public policy work we do here in Texas and now increasingly in D.C., that this business is built on ideas and relationships. And if you start conceding your principles, that is giving up your ideas, and you're no longer worried about face-to-face -face relationships, then we just as soon all sign up to be students at the School of Nihilism because we're, we're, we're then fighting over nothing. And so I know that all of us here at the Public Policy Foundation are grateful that you and your team have put together this great conference. I'm sure that listeners, if they're hearing for the first time, are really interested in attending. If they want to take the next step and register, Eric, how do they do so? What's the website? What's the fee? Oh, I have made it really easy. I all knew they, you did. I knew you did. They're probably listening to this on their cell phone. All they have to do is text the word Austin 
to 345-345, and I will send them back. Uh, we auto-generated it. I'm not staying up all night responding to texts from strangers. Uh, we, we will actually send back um, fairly immediately the link to the registration page so they can come. Excellent. So text Austin to 345-345. Some really fastidious staffer will send back a link and folks can register there. And if by some uh, chance, Eric, listeners are not familiar with the news site, The Resurgent, what's the website address for that? It is theresurgent.com. Excellent. An excellent source of daily news, thoughtful, often long form pieces, but also an opportunity to sort of catch up with what's going on throughout the day. And I will say those of us who are engaged in state-based policy work primarily are grateful for the work that you and your staff do because you share our understanding that every great idea that has ever been implemented in Washington, D.C. started at the local or state level. Well, look, I appreciate it very much, and and I do agree with you that um, politics done locally is done best, and conservatives should keep pushing for that. Well, I'll I'll, I'll ask you one final question, and and I know you'll have – an excellent response. We often ask guests here for some advice, sort of practicality, some next steps. You you spend your, your life communicating the conservative message. What tips would you give to listeners who find themselves in a, a common situation where they're trying to explain an important principle or an important policy to someone who is uh, at least a skeptic, maybe they're really hostile to our position. How do we get our message through? And, and ultimately, how do we persuade people to our way of thinking? First is don't lose your sense of humor, and conservatives have a, a tendency to lose their sense of humor. Um, it, we need to, to have a sense of humor and to convey a level of humility uh, in that humor. Um, never be afraid to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. Um, and a lot of times people want to challenge us in these conversations. It, it's very much the same in ministry when you have skeptics who raise lots of objections about coming to faith and you don't have all the answers and you don't want to lie, um, but being willing to engage them more than just one conversation and get answers when you don't know the answers and be humble and admit it and, and be um, be humorous. But more than that, to be a friend, if you can, in those circumstances, uh, it is we've got to do a better job of building community with people who may not see eye to eye with us in the hopes of one, having stable community, but two, drawing them to our side or at least building friends who recognize we can agree to disagree. We're at a point in the society where people think that if you disagree, you're somehow the enemy. No, you just disagree. Yeah. Um, be willing to be friends with people in debate, uh, to be humorous and, and humble, uh, goes a long way towards helping persuade people. If our business really is about relationships and ideas, then I think you've given us some excellent advice about starting with a relationship, which might turn into a friendship. And then the ideas sort of do their own persuading, right? Because yes. these, these are ideas that just by the nature of principles and ideas transcend whatever political circumstances, social circumstances we live in. Eric Erickson, I can't thank you enough, not only for joining the podcast, but also for the work you do every day and for coming to Austin, Texas in early August, where I can guarantee the sun will be shining and people will be smiling because we get the privilege of living in Texas every day. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you, brother. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Foundation Podcast, brought to you by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.